This week, uh, following Easter, we're looking at the discernment of Jesus. We're going to continue again, uh, beginning Sunday, our discern series. But I thought that this week, the in-between week, between Easter and week five of discern, we would look at how Jesus operated in spiritual discernment. We've looked over the last few days at three prophetic acts uh, that Jesus uh, did in the in the first maybe even 24 hours of Holy Week. And that in these actions, he was not forcing God's hand, but rather he was, in a way, activating or executing God's, God's plan, his Father's plan. And so today, we've got to look at the fact that even though he was being faithful to the Father's plan, it created conflict. It created opposition. The opposition now was uh, being thrown into a, a, a state of, of overdrive almost. Now they want to kill him. Obviously, all of this is leading to Friday and the cross and Sunday and the resurrection. But I thought it would be important for us as we think about the discernment of Jesus and our own discernment that we look at how when you are indifferent to anything but the will of the Father, that it does create opposition. Others will not understand you just as they misunderstood and grew angry with Jesus. God's will at times comes in sharp contrast to the will of others. But at the same time, because Jesus was so focused on the Father's will, his, his senses, his ability to receive from the Father, to receive from the Spirit, even the words that he needed to say as the traps were being laid for him. The attempt was to so trap Jesus in public that he would say something blasphemous in front of this adoring public, because the, the people were enamored with Jesus. It was the leaders who were so angry and wanted him killed. And they knew they couldn't kill him unless they could turn his popularity into condemnation. And so Jesus, knowing what they were up to, exercised not only spiritual discernment, but the fullness of the wisdom of God, in every one of these circumstances. Now, why is that so important to us? Well, you've got to go forward in Mark. We've been looking at Mark 11, Mark 12, but you go to Mark 13, and Jesus advises his disciples, and he says, be on your guard. This is talking to you and me. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother. Father his child. Children will rise against parents, even having them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those are pretty stark words. 
That's the cost he's talking about of truly becoming spiritually sighted is that that spiritual sightedness is a threat to the world system. It's a threat to Satan who, you know, it might be hard for some people to realize, but Satan loves religion. He empowers religion, even religion that calls itself Christianity. And it's just so easy for people who are entrenched with religious influence to rise up against those who are simply indifferent to anything other than the will of the Father. So here comes these three prophetic acts that we looked at. The first was the triumphal entry itself, the donkey that Jesus rode in on in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. The second was the cursing of the fig tree, which was Jesus explaining that something can have the appearance of life and not have life. Because if the fig tree doesn't have fruit, then the, there's something corrupt about the fig tree. This was his preparation for the disciples to understand that he's about to cleanse the temple, which looks like it has religious life, but it's actually corrupt at its center. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. One of the particular aspects that had been crowded out was that there was no space for the for those who were immigrants, there was no space for those who were foreigners. There was no space for those who were of other races. It had become, instead of a court for those to have access who were outside of, of uh, the race of, of, of Jewish people, it had become crowded with, with uh, becoming a place of commerce instead of a place of worship and a house of prayer for all nations. So this now is a direct attack against the leadership, the religious leadership of that day. So the chief priest and uh, those who are in the, the highest council of the priestly class, as well as the highest council of religious leaders, they began to seek to destroy Jesus. But they were, they were unable to do so easily or in a straightforward way because the people were still astonished at Jesus' teaching, his authority when he taught, his clarity when he taught. They want to destroy Jesus because they fear Jesus, but they also fear the crowds and they fear the favor of the crowds. So they began to first publicly have a strategy to turn the crowds against Jesus. So the first thing that they do in verse 27 of chapter 11, is that they challenge his authority. Now, there's, this makes some sense. This, this is connected to, you, you know, you've come into the temple and you've cleansed the temple. In a way, it's, it's, you can understand why this would be their first trap. They're going to ask him by what authority he does what he does. So Jesus now, I mean, this is, this is afterwards, there has been some plotting going on overnight. So he comes the next day to Jerusalem and he's walking into the temple, the temple the day before he had cleansed. And there's these leaders, these religious leaders uh, came to him and they said, you know, by what authority do you do these things? Now, Jesus is not only wise, but smart. 
And he knows that the answer to this question is clearly he's doing it by his father. Remember, he's indifferent to anything but his father's will. So he has heard from the father, and he's done nothing of his own initiative. He's only done what the father is doing. But if he says that, and if he tells them that, then they will have him. So what does he do? He deflects the trap or he avoids the trap. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you the, by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And then he commands him. He says, answer me. And so the, the religious leaders begin to discuss among themselves and they say, well, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus will be able to say to us, why did you not believe him? And if we say from man, then the people who love John will be so angry with them because they really believe that John was a prophet from God. So instead of answering his question, they say to him, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here, here we have people with positional authority. They have the they have the position of being of the highest religious court of the land. They're not, in terms of their, their doctrine or their theology, they are very, they're diverse. But they are unified in seeing the threat that Jesus and his authority is. And so instead of actually finding out, is he really of God, what they want to do is to trap him in, in such a way that they can accuse him of blasphemy. You know, Jesus' authority is God's authority. Jesus is operating under his Father's authority in everything that he does, but they don't care about that. That's why Jesus doesn't answer the question. It's not, it's not a question for information. It's a question of trapping. So uh, It's trying to trip him up. And you see, they know that when he came in and he cleansed the temple, and he took the commerce out of the temple, and he restored the temple to its rightful purpose, they know that he has, he has put a mark on their authority. He has shown them to be what they are, power-hungry, greedy, not really caring for the souls or the spiritual lives of the people, and really not caring about the glory of God or the holiness of God. So, they're trying to use their own authority because, see, they're, they're convinced of their authority because they have positional authority. But Jesus proves himself to be wiser than they are by asking them a question that they cannot answer, even though he commands them to answer it. And so instead of making Jesus look bad by, by these religious authorities saying, we do not know, again, a second diminishment of their authority takes place. So instead of, instead of trapping Jesus, it is more and more clear that these, these leaders do not have spiritual authority. They do not have spiritual discernment. And that their, their religion and their, their devotion to their religion is actually corrupt. That they're really about power. That they're really about their position. That they're really about greed. And they're about these things. And Jesus, instead of you know affirming that they are devoted to God, 
is revealing that they're devoted to their own selfish interest and their own selfish agenda. And you see, because they're afraid of the people, because the people could just as easily throw them out of their position, they say, we do not know if John was of heaven or of man, and they shrink back, and they, they go away. Now, they haven't changed at all their commitment to destroying Jesus. But what has happened here is with a single question, Jesus has turned the tables on the Sanhedrin. They sought to embarrass him, but instead they leave embarrassed. Jesus takes it a step further. Now, we're going to look at this parable for a minute, but I, I, I want to go back to his promise to you. See, if when you're in a testy situation, if you're in a difficult situation, Jesus says that the same words that were provided for him, the same insight, the same wisdom that was provided for him will be provided for you. I had a, I had a situation one time in which um, people that I had cared for, people that I had pastored, were angry with me but in their anger with me and their, their desire to destroy me, they began to lie about me. And they began to tell you know, falsehoods and they began to spread gossip. And I can remember the feeling of that. It was a horrible, awful feeling. And uh, it was in another denomination. It was way back in my 30s, 30 years ago. And I was, I, I kept taking this first. I said, Lord, you promised that you will give me what to say and that your Holy Spirit will speak, not just me. And of course, everything in me, because people were lying about me, they were gossiping, everything in me wanted control, wanted power. I didn't really understand this idea of indifference. I didn't understand that the only thing that mattered was the will of the Father. I, I, I was upset, I was frustrated, and I was anxious. Even the very thing he says, do not be anxious. I was anxious. Because it, it hurt. It hurt deeply that people I loved and had never done anything bad to whatsoever, but had actually sacrificed uh, greatly for them and for their families were treating me in this way. And I just felt like it was so unfair. But I, I knew that everything I said would be taken in a way that wasn't meant. You know, everything would be taken, it would be amplified, it would escalate conflict. And it was so interesting because here's what he says. He says, don't be anxious. So in other words, you have to have your heart at rest in some sense. In other words, giving the outcome to God, giving the result, giving the people, even the gossip to God, letting him be the defender. And here's what the Holy Spirit said. As Jesus was silent before his accusers, you need to be silent. I will defend you. That was one of the hardest things that ever I ever faced in my life. But you see, if Jesus' promise is true and the Holy, says, do, Holy Spirit says, do not speak, then silence will be more powerful than words. But if he had said to me, be silent, and I spoke, and I defended myself, and I put forth my case, then I no longer would have the Holy Spirit speaking. It would just be me speaking, and it wouldn't be wisdom. It would, it would have made such a mess of things. 
And I've learned over the years that that early experience in my 30s of trusting God to defend me, trusting God to speak for me, even if he asks me to be silent, his spirit will speak more powerfully than I ever could. And I've seen it again and again. I've seen it where both the Holy Spirit gave me the exact words to say in a situation, and I've seen him say, this is time to be silent. But you see what Jesus is trying, and even in this conflict, I'm trying to get across to you, that the willfulness that's in us, where we say, I've got to defend myself, I've got to protect myself, you're basically becoming your own lawyer. You're becoming your own advocate. And you're pushing your true advocate out of the way and saying, let me handle this. And this promise that Jesus made to his disciples is that the Holy Spirit will speak for you means you have to sit down and you have to let him be your advocate. Let him be your defender. Let him be your lawyer. Now, when he when he came after these, these religious leaders, he told a parable. Again, this is somewhat indirect, but it's a powerful, powerful picture. Here's what he's saying. he said to them. There was a man who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a hole for a wine press, and built a tower. Then he leased the land to some farmers and left for a trip. When it was time for the grapes to be picked, he sent a servant to the farmers to get his share of the grapes. He's the owner of the vineyard, obviously. But the farmers grabbed the servant and beat him. And then the man sent another servant. They hit him on the head, showed no respect. So the man sent another servant whom they killed. The man had one person left to send, his son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the farmers said to each other, this son will inherit the vineyard. If we kill him, it will be ours. So they took the son, they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those farmers and will give the vineyard to other farmers. Wow. This is one of the, one of the most powerful statements of Jesus. I mean, think about what he's saying here. These are religious leaders who are convinced that they are in, line, in, in alignment with the wishes of, of the owner of the vineyard. And yet what he's saying is God sent prophets. And what'd you do? You killed them. You stoned them. Isaiah, they put him in a tree and, and, and you know, hiding in a tree and they, they, they slaughtered him. Jeremiah, was tried, they tried to kill him three or four times. This is so hard for religious people to get. Is that the attempt to make yourself acceptable to God actually makes it to where you're far from God. And so Jesus is speaking to them. He's not speaking this to them out of, you know, anger. He's speaking it out of clarity of wisdom. That whether you're religious or irreligious, you're far from God. And, and here's the most devoted people on the face of the earth, and yet even they must be born again. Even they must embrace the work of the Son in order to be right with God. So when he told this story, the Jewish leaders immediately knew this was about them. And the people knew that this was about them. 
And they were so angry at Jesus for making this, this point through the parable. So they're, they're wrestling with this tension at this moment. They're, they are so afraid of the people's opinion because, you see, everything for them is appearance. Everything, about, everything of, that, is, that God is about is heart, inside out. Everything they're about is how it looks on the outside. And so they have all the trappings of religion and Jesus is saying, you're the very ones who have killed the servants of my father. And he, he exposes their plot. And now you want to kill his son. And now you're going to kill his son. And he's saying there will be no place with the father, with the creator, if you do not embrace the son. Really powerful. They want to kill him right there, right on the spot. They want to kill him because he has exposed their inner evil, how far they are from God, their, hypocr their hypocrisy. But they're so afraid of the people that they go away. So now they, they come with another trap, and it's basically the, the, they're going to try to make him look bad with the people because they're trying to get him trapped about taxes, about paying taxes. So this time they... they they send a different group. They send the Pharisees. The, the, the other group were the highest, the, the, like the upper class. Pharisees were, were utterly devoted religious people, but they weren't necessarily rich. Uh, they, were kind of, they were kind of working class. So they send them, these, you know, these more incredibly devout, you know, more humble looking at least people. So they come to, you know, but they're still the same, the same conspiracy is at work. So they come to Jesus and this time, listen, listen to their words. Oh, teacher, rabbi, it's a false display of respect. And then, then, then they try to flatter him some more. We know you are an honest man. I mean, you know, again, See how, I mean, see how worldly this is. We'll give you false respect that we don't really feel in our heart because we're trying to trap you. We flatter you so that we can soften you up. You say, oh, look, we're your friends. We're with you. And Jesus does not, Jesus does not catch, you know, it does not fall for any of this stuff, you know? And so they asked Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus just, un, you know, like uh, unveils their trap. He says, why are you trying to trap me? And Jesus says, well, bring me a coin. So they gave Jesus a coin. He said, whose image and name are on the coin? And they answer, Caesar's. And this is where Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. His image is on the coin. Give it to him. And give to God the things that are God's. This answer utterly amazed people. Even though they, and especially those who came to trap him, even though they came to trap him, they realized he had outmaneuvered them. A third conflict comes. All right, so part of the, the religious echelon, these Pharisees were, um, you know, devout Orthodox, kind of ultra Orthodox, believed in life after death. 
a resurrection and life with God. But the Sadducees, who were the uh, more connected to the priestly class and, and actually were the, the very upper class of uh, Jewish society in that day, and they were, they, 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 they were powerful, they did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in life after death. They actually only believed in the books of Moses, and they only really cared about the books, the, the, the practices of the priests, because they were the priestly class. So they come to Jesus and ask him a question about life after the resurrection, which again, they're pretending respect for Jesus. They're addressing him as a teacher, but Jesus knows that they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that you go in the ground and that's it. They don't, you know, they, they have discarded the prophets and everything else. They're only interested in their own priestly position. So they come and they talk about in the resurrection that, you know, one man dies and his brother has to marry his wife and then another, that one dies and they just go on and on to there's like seven seven men who've married the same woman and there's no offspring. And then finally the woman dies. It must have been, a, what a weird story, right? Seven men die. This woman finally dies. And then it says, in the resurrection, when we rise again, which one of the seven will this wife be? For all seven had had her as a wife. So they give Jesus this hypothetical situation and they're hoping to make Jesus look silly by def- he, if he begins to defend the doctrine of the resurrection and jump through this hoop of this complicated hypothetical situation. Here's how Jesus answers. He says, you are wrong. <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Have you not read in the book of Moses? See, they were experts on the books of Moses. Have you not read in the book of Moses how God spoke to Moses in the burning bush saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, this is so powerful. The only thing they really believed in was the book of Moses. And what is Jesus doing? He's, He's saying, you haven't even believed the book that you say you believe because God is not the God of the dead. But when he appears and reveals himself to Moses, what did he say? I'm God of the living Abraham. I'm God of the living Isaac. I'm God of the living Jacob. In other words, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Which Jesus is saying, God's own revelation of who he was is a revelation of the resurrection and of life after death and of the continuation of the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes, you are quite wrong. Then there's one more situation. I don't have a lot of time left, but there's one more. So there's one scribe. Now, now scribes are kind of lawyers of the law. You know, they're, they're experts. They're scholars of the law. And so he comes to Jesus. And I, you know, I don't know, but the, the way it's put is almost like he says, all these other people, they've been wrong, but I know exactly how to trap them. And he comes to Jesus and he says, which of the commandments is most important? Now, this scribe, he skips all niceties. He doesn't, he's not trying to flatter. He just comes straight out with this question. And he thinks, I think, he thinks he can see, succeed where the others do not. So Jesus has used 
questions and other occasions to turn the tables, but this time, this time, he uses this question to identify and state the most important elements of God's law. And he says, the most important commandment is this, love the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Shema, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe is kind of blown away by this and he goes, that was a good answer, teacher. Suddenly this disrespectful scribe turns respectful as he hears Jesus's answer. The scribe recognizes and does not run from the truth. See, all the others kept their agenda. But this scribe starts to lean in a little bit. You've truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus, seeing the answer of the man, saw that he answered wisely. Jesus said, you are close. You're close to the kingdom of God. And after that, no one was brave enough to ask Jesus any more questions. I've been a pastor my my whole adult life. I've been in church my entire life. It's fascinating how we get off track. Jesus puts us right back and says, Here, here's what matters. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's it's you can't refute that. But here's here's the problem with that. You also can't fulfill it. And I think he was getting to the scribe and saying, look, with all the rules you have and all the ways you try to be devoted, you still haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you certainly haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. And you begin to realize religious people need a savior because they can't fulfill the law. And the only way that you can be acceptable to God is if Jesus fulfills the law for you. For he alone loved the Lord his God with all his heart. He was indifferent to everything else. And therefore he had the wisdom to answer anyone. He received this today. That This is what Jesus has done for us. He's taken commandment breakers. He's taken covenant breakers. And he's included us. In the love of God, as if we loved the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loved our neighbor as ourselves. That's the amazing thing of the gospel, that we know we have not fulfilled those two great commandments. But Jesus has. And now the Father treats us as if we have fulfilled those commandments, because we are in Christ. What an awesome thing the gospel is. What an unwise thing it is to try to reach God any other way. Receive afresh the good news that Jesus kept those two commandments so that you are treated as if you kept them. In Jesus' name, amen.